tune in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Cheryl Ann Fernandez. Cheryl has been working in companion animal welfare for over 25 years. She received her Bachelor of Science degree in Humane Leadership from Duquesne University. Cheryl Ann spent her early professional years lobbying at the state level in Connecticut for improved humane legislation and then spent over a decade serving as an animal control officer. Much of that time was for the city of Bridgeport, Connecticut's largest urban municipality, where she experienced firsthand the true challenges that face humane officers and how to handle the day-to-day stressors. She remains a member of the National Animal Care and Control Officers Association. Cheryl Ann then transitioned into not-for-profit animal welfare, where she served as both shelter director and in-house staff trainer at a number of facilities in Connecticut and New York, specializing in program development, staff coaching, and customer service. Cheryl Ann has been consulting, providing online and in-person compassion fatigue training, and has been a certified compassion fatigue instructor for the Figley Institute since 2009. She serves on Connecticut's SART team, is a published writer, author, and is an active volunteer for numerous community-related animal welfare programs. She's a board member for the Nutmeg Spay-Neuter Clinic in Stratford, Connecticut. In 2013, Cheryl Ann decided to take on a new challenge and today works as PetLink's regional shelter care representative, offering microchip-related products and services to shelters and nonprofit organizations and helps promote proactive compassion satisfaction to shelter teams nationwide. Cheryl Ann spends much of her time in Virginia, where her boyfriend is an animal control officer. They met while both were attending a national animal welfare conference three years ago. Cheryl Ann, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stacy. Thanks for having me. I sound great on paper, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> you have a, a long list of achievements, but uh, 25 years, I will say, is a pretty long time to have a career in animal welfare. So congratulations on that yeah. one. Thanks. Thanks. I, I actually love what I do, and I'm very fortunate to be one of the people that gets paid to do what they love. So it has been a tremendous ride, and I'm hoping to continue it for a number more years. So if we can take a, a step back, what was the uh, the spark that got you first interested in animal welfare? You know, that's I. I'm, it's a good question. I always loved animals, as most of us um, that are in this industry do. And it started from a, a very young age. I, there's no specific example that I can give you other than every animal I loved. I wanted to save them all. I even remember when I was a, a kid, somebody was giving kittens away and knocked on our front door and there was a basket of kittens. And I'm like, mom, I want them all. <laughs> we did get one, but we didn't get them all. But I've always had cats in my life. I've always had dogs as well, but cats were always more the focus that I enjoyed. And even now I have two cats 
with all of my travels, it's a lot easier for cats, of course, but cats have always been something I've always wanted to focus more on. And even in my animal control career, cats always seemed to get the short end of the stick in the sense of legislation and, and whatnot, which is how I then decided that I wanted to get into legislation as a volunteer. Yeah. So you had mentioned earlier in the uh, pre-show conversation that legislation was really where your heart was at in the beginning. And I'm just wondering why? Usually people tend to be like, oh, I want to be hands-on. I want to be in there. How did you become aware of sort of the interest and actually the ability to work with lobbying and legislation? Thanks. I grew up with a mother as a police officer. So laws were always something that I was very aware of. And legislation, to create that legislation and to create laws that then would be enforced, it was always uh, dinner talk or dinner conversations in the family, not necessarily cat or dog related, but just laws in general were something that I was raised on. So I always wanted to do the right thing for the community and for my for my fellow human beings. And why not take that into animal welfare? Because again, that was my heart. When I was 15, I was mucking horse stalls. Some kids were, you know, off uh, working their part-time jobs. Mine was always surrounded around animals. If it wasn't purchasing rabbits from the guy that was raising them for me down the street from me to working with horses. Cats and, and laws were always something I wanted to focus on. So it was kind of a, a part of my childhood and then into my adulthood. I didn't necessarily need to have to clean the cages in order to feel connected to the animals, but I wanted to know that their future would be secure and laws and legislation would do that. And then you moved into being an animal control officer. And uh, could you touch upon how your experience was with that? Sure. As as I was volunteer lobbying up at the state capitol in Connecticut, I got to meet some awesome people, some legislators, some animal control officers, some state workers. And I kind of stumbled upon a part-time job at a local animal control facility in Connecticut. They were looking for somebody for 20 hours a week, and my hand went right up in the air. Mm. And that was kind of how I got started and then realized that full-time career in the local town next door to the town I was working in, which was Bridgeport, then I just was like, huh. All right, let me, it's a full-time position open. Let me see what that's all about. Boy, was that a wild ride, I can tell you that. <laughs> what were your greatest challenges in that position? I think just understanding the the challenges of what an urban animal control facility faces versus more of a, a rural or um, a community program that I would work in in Fairfield, Connecticut it was, it was much more about maintaining as opposed to reacting. So in Bridgeport, it was very much reactive animal control work. And some of that was because of the way that the laws were set up. And that for me was where I really wanted to make a difference. I would actually drive around with dog food, cat food, leashes, collars, educational materials to hand out as part of the campaign to try to be proactive instead of reactive and to connect with others in the community that really needed a resource to go to for animal control as opposed to just the traditional old philosophy of animal control slash dog, dog catcher. And that was not what my department was at all. And then you moved on after that. Was that when you went into sort of a compassion fatigue sort of Yeah, part? I ended up working, or, or I'm sorry, I ended up studying while I was working full time to get my associate's degree. I just said, you know, I want to I wanna get a degree. And that led into Duquesne University to get the humane leadership degree that I had eventually received. 
And during that time, I had met Kathleen Figley, who was one of the instructors, and just absolutely fell in love with the idea of helping others and supporting others who helped animals. And who of us that are amongst this world of animal welfare don't suffer from some kind of stress, PTSD, the things that we've seen and the things that we've done really could affect us emotionally. So compassion fatigue, again, paying it forward in the community that then helps animals was was kind of a, a focal point for me and thought at one point in time, that's what I really wanted to do is just do that full time. And then this job that I'm working at now kind of came up. And so I've kind of been doing both along the way. I've been focusing on compassion fatigue while I've also been working outside of the direct care, which I had done for 22 years. And now I'm doing a support role, so to say, with, with the job that I have now. So just to run a scenario uh, about compassion fatigue and helping work with people that are suffering, what are the general recommendations that you provide to help people sort of get through that time? I always like to say check in with yourself and check in with others. If you work with somebody or you have a family member that works in the animal welfare industry, check in with them. Make sure that they are are where they need to be emotionally. Do they have hobbies outside of animal welfare? Do they have a strong support network? Do they have fun? Do they laugh? Do they go out and enjoy themselves? And if, and if they don't have a lot of those components to make compassion satisfaction in their life, then they may be suffering from compassion fatigue. So get to a counselor, get to a therapist, talk to folks, find a hobby, find a way to release meditation. I'm very lucky. I live uh, just a mile from the Long Island Sound here in Connecticut. And my therapy is walking the beach every day and posting pictures on social media. That is my compassion satisfaction. So when I do go into shelters now as a, a shelter care worker, as a, as, a, as a rep for a microchip company, it still affects me. I still get a little bit of that trauma that I have kind of forgotten about because I'm not hands-on in a shelter every day. So folks who actually work in communities, taking care of programs that are community cat programs or colonies, they really need to know how to balance out the sad stuff that they see with the happy stuff that that they can live for. One thing that is very hard with many of these community cat volunteers that are out there, oftentimes their houses become large foster homes or holding areas for ferals while they're waiting for them to get spay or neuter. And I have found over the years was you felt like you couldn't get away from it no matter what. I mean, the litter box had to be scooped. Right. The cats had to be fed. Right. You, just, you couldn't just put a freeze on it right, right away. So you had to phase freeze yourself, realize that you needed to do something, but you're going to have to phase it down. Yes, absolutely. And realize what your limits are. And the word no is a complete sentence. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And you do need to be able to, to say no and focus. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Ready to make a big difference for cats in your community? We've got an exciting opportunity that can jumpstart your efforts. The Community Cats Podcast has launched Community Cats Grants. When you qualify for this innovative program, you'll gain valuable knowledge about how to raise funds for your spay neuter efforts. Plus, we'll match the funds you raise up to $1,000, doubling your ability to make a difference for cats. Fundraising doesn't have to be scary. We'll be with you every step of the way. 
Check it out. You can find all of the details on the Community Cats podcast website under our education menu. Let's join forces to make the world a better place for community cats. Some of the things that we've talked about in our other shows, we've talked about our targeting of TNR programs and being able to focus your resources in one concentrated area. And being involved uh, with PetLink, you're able to travel all across the country and you represent microchipping services. And I was wondering if we could talk a bit about community cats and microchipping identification, the importance of, as well as what you've sort of seen across the country with the use of uh, microchipping for community cats. Absolutely. Uh, My territory covers actually 19 states and I go to about 18 to 20 conferences a year. And when I'm uh, in some of the New England states versus some of the southern states and then all the way out to California, there's a wide variety of ordinances, laws, legislation, education. So the campaign on behalf of cats at a community level is very different in, say, California than it is, say, in um, Texas, for example, or the Carolinas. So what I really like to do is try to allow um, shelters, animal control officers to embrace the idea of pet identification as a means of live release rates. So when I go into a a traditionally uh, tough area to work with when it comes to even spaying and neutering, spaying and neutering, I think most places get it. They understand it. We here in New England have been doing it a lot longer and have had the resources to do it more so than some of the southern states, for example. We also um, have different type of weather here in the New England states than I do in some of the other states that I go to. So we don't have necessarily the colonies, or at least we're better managed colonies than down south. So when I find out that animal control officers are impounding feral cats, sometimes not on by choice, but just by force because their town government officials are insisting that they do or the community is in such an uproar, I try to explain to them about microchipping and about the guidelines that they should be following when it comes to feral and stray for, for pet reunification, not just vaccinations and licensing, but if they can get that microchip done in that animal, they can get that cat back to that colony that that cat lived in. But more so what I stress to them is since you are an animal control officer, you are protecting the public. And if that person picks up that cute little kitten and it gets scratched by that little kitten, that's a death sentence almost all the time for that animal. But if you've got a microchip, you can actually now positively identify that animal to specifically the paperwork and the vaccination history that that colony keeper is keeping on that animal. So not only can you save that animal's life, but you can potentially reduce the risk of a person having to go through the series of rabies shots. Because as we know, rabies is a very, very frightening subject for somebody to have to face because it's a death sentence if they're unaware that they even got rabies. And then when in doubt, everybody has to have their post-exposure yes. um, shots. Right, right. And so from a colony keeper standpoint, I also think microchipping is really an added benefit because if you're doing all of these trapping and neutering and vaccinating, and then two years later, you have four black cats out there and you're like, huh, 
which one had his shots? Let me figure that out. So if you have a microchip in them and you can get close enough to them, or if you're trapping them once a year for your vaccinations, you can then see where they're at when, when it comes to the needed medical care that they are going to have. Well, and certainly in Massachusetts, our wound of unknown origin laws are pretty strict. Uh, just recently, the isolation period went from six months down to four months. So that was very exciting news, the quarantine period for wound of unknown origin cats without proof of uh, current rabies vaccination. But we have had many situations where we've had to talk with the state where there's been an ear-tipped cat. So you can presume that cat, if it was ear-tipped, spayed, or neutered, must have received a vaccination. But it did not, it, as you said, the colony was 10 black and white cats, right. domestic short hair. So you've got your paperwork for those cats that were done at baby the same time, maybe not the same time. Right. And so the state's not going to take that as independent individual identification in order to prove that that cat does have a current rabies vaccination and only would need a booster shot right. in a 45-day quarantine right. period. So it really can be very beneficial in saving lives and saving the amount of time a feral cat has to spend in quarantine before being able to release back out into the colony. Right. And you're not only saving the lives, you're also working with an understaffed, under-budgeted animal control department. And if they can reduce their intakes or their hold time, that's one less animal that's in the system and it can get returned appropriately to where it needs to be. So the one thing that I'm finding interesting by talking with all these different organizations and different folks all across the country is how different it is for animal control in different parts of the country. In New England in general, there's not a lot of holding that happens of cats or community cats. Most of it's focused around holding dogs. But other parts of the country, there seems to be much more involvement with bringing cats into municipal shelters. Am I wrong in reading that sense? Nope, I absolutely think you're you're right on target. I found in the New England states, traditionally in my state of Connecticut, there's no specific laws on, on cat management where your municipality can have the option to take on a cat ordinance in their community if they want. But traditionally, if I were to call and say I have a stray cat in my yard, my animal control department is not gonna come and get it. But if I have a stray dog in my yard, they'll absolutely be there in a heartbeat. So the, the microchipping can also help us find creative alternatives to getting that animal back to that home if animal control is not necessarily involved in that part of it. So that leads to the access to scanners. Ah. And I know that we've worked hard with the groups in Massachusetts that we've worked with trying to find ways to get scanners at whatever affordable rate or get grant funding right. to be able to get scanners in, in as many hands as possible, yep. put it that yep. way. And I believe the technology has improved to create a good universal scanner. So the different companies are relatively covered, which is helpful. But do you have any tips for organizations on accessing affordable scanners and affordable microchipping costs? Sure. I think working with, say, if you are proactive in microchipping and you work for a municipality or you're a volunteer at a shelter, make sure that, that you do your homework and you do your research and you check out all the different microchip companies to make sure that all of the bells and whistles that they offer are going to fit into the program that you're looking for at PetLink 
Data Mars is my parent company, and I am basically a, a sales rep for a manufacturing company. So Data Mars has the division of PetLink. We're a 28-year-old company, the second oldest microchip company in the world, and we only make universal microchips. So I stress that that folks here in the United States understand and embrace that technology. Years ago, non-universal was the thing, but as we've as we've evolved, universal microchips and universal scanners are really another tool in the toolbox to be used out there for pet reunification and for your feral colonies and your community cat programs. So talking to your shelter directors, your managers, if you are a shelter director or manager, really do your homework. Look to see what's going to best benefit you. There is so much grant money out there. It really is how to fill out that grant paperwork, find that that program, or find that organization that can support you with grant money. Come to me if you're in one of my 19 states. I'm certainly going to do my best to give you rock bottom prices. We have discounts for nonprofits and welfare organizations, and we do have a pay it forward program to offer. If you support this program, maybe we can help you. We don't have a nonprofit portion that we can give things away traditionally. But we do try to work our best with individual situations every time we run into them. And my boss is constantly saying, "Okay, prove to me why this needs to be done. And in nine out of 10 times, he's right on on target with supporting whatever we're trying to do out in the field, myself and the two other sales reps. So what trends do you see happening across the country for community cats? Do you see life getting better for them? You know, I actually do. I'm starting to see the dialogue change with with some of the folks who traditionally didn't understand what community cat programs were. And I've traveled everywhere from Chincoteague Island doing TNR programs out there with clients all the way out to San Francisco for street cats, you know, in the parks. And I'm seeing that more animal control officers are getting involved. There's less fear that community cat program and feral colony keepers are no longer afraid of their local law enforcement division. Even NACA, their guidelines, um, just a, they have a four or five paragraphs on community cat management. But one of them, it just says, NACA recognizes that in some circumstances, alternative management programs, including trap, neuter, vaccinate, and return programs may be effective and recommends that each agency assesses the individual need with their community and respond accordingly. So even at a national level, National Animal Control Officers Association is is experiencing how community cats are here and they're not going away. And local law enforcement individuals, instead of thinking the feral colony keepers afraid that the, that the animal control is going to find out where these colonies are, they're actually helping to target where these colonies are. And then the colony keepers can help support animal control, educate, connect, and campaign on behalf of those cats. Excellent. Cheryl Ann, if uh, folks are interested in finding out more about microchipping, scanners, or just reaching out to you in general, compassion fatigue too, maybe? Sure. Um, how can they reach you? Sure. My um, cell phone is always on, and it is 781-281-5167. And my email is really long, but it's my first name. It's Fernandez at datamars.com. So they can certainly get a hold of me that way. And I'm all over social media too, girls. So they can always find me <laughs> and friend me on Facebook as well. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think that it's just educating yourself, educating your neighbors, getting out there, being proactive, 
campaigning on behalf of the animals and the cats that we so dearly love and, and deserve a better life than being euthanized. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show today. And Cheryl Ann, I hope you'll be on in the future. Thank you. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 